0: hey everybody welcome to latter-day Struggles. so excited to be here with you today and happy to have nathan back at my side how are you tonight nath
1: i am wonderful how are you
0: good good we are coming at you as promised to visit with you guys about missionary work and this is by request, there are a few of you who have asked us to address the larger topic of missionary work and specifically to address some thoughts and feelings about well two things the fifth Sunday, that many of us just participated in a worldwide uh, meeting that we all had uh, encouraging missionary service and also how many of us noticed a very pervasive theme in the most recent general conference of our church on missionary service and we're all wondering or maybe not so much wondering what is going on behind (laughs) this this increased and enhanced interest in missionary service so before we kick that off though
1: hang on before you kick that off oh you said encouraging missionary service okay, me, on the fifth I, Sunday. Should
0: I strengthen that? Because, well, okay, go.
1: I think you need <laughs> at least put that in quotes. Okay. <laughs> if if not, um, compelling.
0: Compelling, mandating, mis-
1: mandating missionary yeah. service. I think that's really more what we felt yes, on the we fifth Sunday.
0: We are going to we're going to hit that topic
1: in a minute. Hard. Yeah.
0: Right. Before we do that, though, you guys, we thought it might be fun for you to know that. We both do have a bit of a soft spot in our hearts for the mission because it was none other than the mission that brought you and me together.
1: That's right. So
0: why don't you talk a little bit about that and then I will too. But yeah, we've got hours of stories about how we met and (laughs) all of the things that have to do with our our first experiences together.
1: Which we're actually not going to go into. We won't give you hours of
0: that, not today. (laughs) But
1: we did meet on the mission. We did know each other from the mission. We were completely kosher uh we did not date until we got back to BYU uh, although sometimes we joke about um violating mission rules we really didn't uh and it was I, I absolutely 100 percent agree with you um the, the mission I have great memories of my mission and I would not uh trade it for any experience I've ever had I, w- I would don't regret doing a mission if I could go back I would do it again uh and we have encouraged all of our children to give it uh, a strong consideration because we do think there are a lot of blessings that come from serving a mission
0: okay you just went too global too fast i'm going to circle us back <laughs> to how we met and a couple things really quickly is we did have sort of a, a a frenemy relationship as missionaries uh first interaction we had was my asking my zone leader elder Hammaker, mm. if i could have special permission to leave my area so i could visit a new convert who had uh, kind of gone less active, which was not an unusual occurrence. We were both Spanish-speaking missionaries in the Oakland, California mission between you were 94 through 96 and I was 95 through 96. Yeah. Yeah, we're about the same age. He's a few, a few months younger than me. So he went, well, but you went actually when you were almost 20 years old, right? Correct. Okay, so uh, first, our first interaction was his denying my request unreasonably, I say to this very day, and so because Hmm. i never was um one to do to be very respectful to my priesthood holders especially when they were young Squeak elders i said give me to your companion
1: yes and you also said no
0: yeah so anyhow that is um we always kind of joke about that but that entire interaction in my opinion is actually a great illustration of some fundamental problems with the mission i think
1: yeah that we'll get to later right which is why I went global early. <laughs> I was trying to no, avoid was, these stories. I was determined to at least share a couple
0: of stories. Let me also share with you guys in the spirit of talking about uh, my the soft spot I have in my heart for my mission. Um, I have a lot of complicated feelings about the mission, but let me begin with the, the positive ones. I absolutely enjoyed being a missionary. I was called as a visitor center missionary, <clears throat> but I didn't like it. I didn't enjoy The pace was too slow, and I actually wanted to be out there talking to people. And to his credit, my mission president uh, took my uh, feedback and I was out in the field for most of the mission doing what I kind of thought was more sort of traditional missionary work. And so I'm really grateful for that. And um, something else that I was really grateful for that I think, again, it it puts me in sort of a little bit of a unique place to talk about missionary service, because while I was uh, a firsthand recipient of a lot of the patriarchy, That is a true I think the mission is a training ground for um, institutional patriarchy and i'm going to go deeper into that later, I will say that I think I had some unique opportunities that really in some ways. were a little bit more of an exception to the rule, maybe in that as missionaries in the um, San Francisco area, I was given the opportunity to serve as an escort for several spanish-speaking uh international consulates because the the what's it called the embassy mm-hmm. Yeah, the embassy the u.s embassy is in san francisco california and our our the area at the time of our mission was doing a lot of public affairs kinds of things because steve young was the quarterback for the san francisco 49ers and he spoke fairly frequently to very large audiences and we would invite i say we The church would invite a lot of dignitaries to uh, attend many of these events and some of them were not fluent english speakers and my mission president frequently asked me to uh, and my companion to accompany these women and gentlemen at these events and so while on the one hand i definitely did not benefit from the patriarchy that was endemic to all missions on the other hand i was just arrogant enough to think that i was just every bit as good as any of those boys am i right you were i mean at least you think you you agree that i that i was arrogant
1: <laughs> <laughs> we <laughs> were we were both arrogant <laughs> yeah and we both had a lot to learn yeah. um our, our mission president was um very patriarchal uh very hard-nosed yeah and i i think it served good and bad yeah uh, i at least uh, feel like i benefited somewhat from the the structure of a mission mm. um you know, much like going into the military, having having kind of a regimented life was good for me. Uh, I think it can go too far, and we'll touch on this in a little bit.
0: Well, and I, I also think I would, I would say that we were definitely missionaries of the 90s. Yeah. The corporate America mission structure, we had clickers,
1: did we <laughs> yeah, not? We did. We had
0: clickers. Every companionship had clickers, and it was beat into us that we use those clickers
1: to count the number of people we invited to do something and, and we had to report those numbers right. every week how and, many people yes. did we click uh
0: the, I, my understanding was after we left the mission um and it got back to the uh, to headquarters of uh, how incredibly numbers oriented and sort of obsessed with numbers our mission was that the clickers were um taken away they they that was undone but we definitely were a very very competitive numbers oriented kind of mission and then the other thing I will say as you're speaking about sort of our experience with our mission president was um I have a very painful um experience from the very beginning the very very first thing that happened from this very patriarchal I would say kind of I would go so far as to say kind of a male chauvinistic male
1: Mm -hmm.
0: um mission president is in our very first conversation, before he even asked me my name or anything about me, he wow, looked yeah. into my eyes and mm-hmm. he said to me, what church calling does your dad have? Yeah,
1: I remember that. <laughs>
0: and that was heartbreaking to me because my parents were going through a bitter divorce at the time.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And I didn't have um, what I would consider at that moment. I thought, oh, my goodness, that's how this is going to be, that I don't necessarily have a good um i don't i don't have a resume mm-hmm. or a coat of arms to share that is going to make me valuable in this mission because i i read fairly quickly that the val my value was going to be based on some sort of a, a system of hierarchy based on uh, priesthood and calling and responsibility that my dad had and so when i basically had to say i i wasn't even i don't even know if i knew he was i i wasn't in connection with him at the time because of the the ugliness of what my family was going through and i felt a lot of shame
1: mm.
0: on my very very first day and in some ways felt like any time i was given responsibilities or opportunities to serve that that was more um i was i was always consistently surprised and shocked that i was tr- trustworthy enough to do that because of course my father wasn't you know a state president or a bishop or whatever was meaningful at least to my mission president so mm yeah so yeah we had it was it was a
1: was a learning experience for sure and you know like i said i I have a lot of fond memories i I loved san francisco i loved the people um you know i I have one memory and then we can move on of um our mission president telling us that we were not allowed to teach people who were actively gay or lesbian um and i remember one of the other elders uh getting up in his face and saying i'm sorry president i just Stand out there and say, I want to teach the gospel to whoever wants to listen. I don't ask them what their current sexual status is. And and he basically said, well, you need to. Mm -hmm. And I remember thinking to myself, this is tough because I can understand Elder Bird's position about why would we lead with that? I just want to teach the gospel, but I also wanted to be loyal to my mission president. And so, you know, there's a lot of these experiences that young missionaries go through that I think are, are, are really good for, for our psychological development as we struggle through some of the the blessings, but also the difficulties of a mission.
0: Well, and I think what you're touching on is a good way to open up, which is I think that's a struggle that's still being worked through, which is um, our 19, 20, 21 year old young people, um, are they being taught something in the mission that isn't necessarily helpful or healthy to their larger development in their life? And I know for us, and I've I've gotten a lot of messages from you guys who have requested that we talk a lot about this, is I was interested in learning that when we were in the mission in the mid-90s, it was pounded into our heads on the regular that obedience is the first law of heaven and yeah. th- there was nothing more important than obedience and it wasn't obedience to conscience mind you it was always obedience <laughs> to some other human authority or
1: the white handbook the white handbook
0: it. uh the mission president or to our our leaders right. it was obedience to these people and not obedience to conscience. And so, in some cases, when you're a black and white thinker, because you're young and you're impressionable, and you want to do what your president tells you to do, I think that is sometimes the beginnings of our unlearning how to trust our own inner divine. Mm-hmm. And the mission is a is a training ground sometimes for teaching people how to be toxically orthodox.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And they even would, would go so far as to make it transactional, like the most obedient missionaries Absolutely. will baptize the most. The most the most obedient missionaries will be the most protected. Um, and there would be times where we would hear stories of missionaries, not in our mission, but other missions who died in their missionary service. And our mission president would tell us they must have been disobeying some rule.
0: It was always very, very one for one. No. It was always one cause and one effect. And it always had to do with perfect obedience, which again, as as kids and Nathan, you and I, were very young, impressionable, gullible, typical, probably, missionaries just taking it all in. Although I will say, as the years go by, and even back in the time, I remember vividly, even as a kid, you know, a 21-year-old girl listening, we had, once again, you guys, we were in a very cool mission, if I do say so myself, Um, in San Francisco, missionaries were called to 13, right? 13 different Languages? languages. Oh, I
1: think it was closer to 20. So there were there were a, a
0: myriad of different languages that missionaries spoke so much so that and because we were in california it was not unusual that we had visiting general authorities and things and it was the pride and joy of our mission president's heart to have us sing i am a child of god all 15 to 20 times mm-hmm. in every single language once in each language and <clears throat> as if he personally sort of taught this, <laughs> these words to us our, you know himself right. but I remember kind of going back to sort of the transactional nature of obedience and sort of the maniacal focus on that that he would stand. um, A Chinese speaking missionary next to a Spanish speaking missionary. Or at least maybe figuratively maybe he didn't do this I don't want to I don't want to overstate this, but the, the what he would communicate to us was. If the Chinese-speaking missionaries were as obedient as the Spanish-speaking missionaries, they would be baptizing as many as the Spanish-speaking missionaries. And even back in the day, I was just racking my brain, like, "You're insane! <laughs> like, there's no way these people are learning the basics of Christianity, much yeah. less you know Latin American people, which we were both Spanish-speaking missionaries, and we we by far baptized more than any other language. Yeah,
1: it's a totally different culture. Totally different
0: culture. But that was not ever taken into account. It was very simple. Black and white in his mind, and it really, in some ways, um, did a number on some of us missionaries and sort of messing our minds up and like, well, he's the leader, he's the priesthood holder, we should trust everything he says, we should be perfectly obedient, and yet there was something deep within us that was like, this isn't right, this doesn't feel good, so, okay.
1: So we had an interesting comment from one of the listeners who who responded talking about the rigidity of a mission, and I think it was an interesting thought so let's talk let's i'm going to paraphrase it if i can but
0: is it this is it this one or is it something else
1: uh, i don't know but basically she said um something to the effect of in, in an effort to make missions a little less rigid why couldn't we introduce some alternatives such as you can pick your length of service you could pick the type of mission you could choose a service mission versus a proselyting mission or you could choose a visitor center mission over a proselyting mission if that suits you. Um, maybe have some choice over where you go or whether or not you learn a language. And so this would, this would do two things. It would introduce a little more flexibility for everybody, but also specifically for a missionary who might have anxiety, <clears throat> excuse me, about learning a new language or being in a different culture or not feeling like they can make two years or 18 months or not wanting to give up their uh, education for that long. Uh, you know, a lot of BYU athletes choose not to serve missions because they know they're going to come back and uh, will perhaps forfeit an opportunity to have a professional athletic career. Um, she even suggested why couldn't they have, uh, you know, like two days a week off and, and be able to participate in a hobby one of those days? Just take, take a class. A, take a break or a class, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, So maybe you can touch on that a little bit, Val, the the thoughts around uh, ways to restructure some of this rigid uh, nature of a mission.
0: Well, I think what we have to do is we have to think about what is it that we're trying to achieve in this idea of a mission for the, you know, uh, and, and if it's all about growing the church and it's all about serving the needs of the institution then you do just exactly what you're doing. You make it extraordinarily rigid. You make it meet the needs of the institution and you don't give any of the participants any kind of autonomy or liberty mm. to choose for themselves. And it, it, what this woman said, I think it was a woman, doesn't matter, what he or she said was maybe we could consider some radical changes that actually help these young people feel like they are adults, not like their children.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, infantilizing them. Exactly, exactly.
0: And so what she was suggesting is actually, if we really want to think about how this mission could actually benefit those who are doing the service, why don't we look at ways that that we would be growing them up? And I think the very best way to ever get anyone truly engaged And really buying into any kind of activity is giving them some buy in Mm -hmm. giving them some autonomy Nathan what i'm thinking Mm -hmm. about right now. Mm. Is with one of our uh, young adults, she wanted to do some sort of an alternative to a mission because of her own where she was in her life, and so what we ended up doing is we. We, we researched it right mm-hmm. is i wonder what it would look like if it was kind of what we saw with some of these organizations which was here are all <laughs> of the various openings right throughout the world these are the cities these are the activities these are the products right. projects you'd be building homes here you'd be doing clerical work at a homeless shelter here you would be working at a food pantry here right there's a three-month option a six-month option a nine-month option and so it actually, and it, and it rotated based on who was filling the slots based on what they could actually do.
1: Yeah. So we, yeah, we had a look into what was called the U.S. Service Corps, and this is exactly what it did. Yeah. There were all different lengths of service. There were all different types of service, and they were all over the country, and you could choose.
0: And you could do it on your <clears throat> own schedule. Yes. Three, six, nine, twelve, eighteen. I think it up, went up to two years. Mm-hmm. And it never really occurred to me until I was reading this, um, this, this note from, from one of you listeners that one of the chief problems that we have across the board in the institution of the church is, is we have no voice, yeah. the constituents, and we essentially have no buy-in. Yeah. And so it's like you do what we ask you to do on our terms or you're out
1: which I think is a great lead in to the next point.
0: Yeah. Which is what? <laughs> uh,
1: the the whole uh you have no choice and you are going to do what we ask you to do.
0: Why don't we before like let's talk about that, but let's go ahead and just bring up the most recent couple of incidences where we really have started to feel this. Okay, you guys. So, um, yeah. any of you who are sort of involved at all um active in the church. We all know uh that general conference, I don't know about you guys, but Nathan and I kept them um, exchanging glances like, "Holy cow, another another talk on missionary work." And it wasn't just any kind of talk. It was a it was a mandate. Right. It was a call to service, and it was more of a a, a demand, a request. It yeah. was frantic. It felt like it was um kind of pushy.
1: Right. Am I, well, not, I'm not, pushy. not kind
0: of pushy. Let's pull the kind of out of it. It was very pushy. It was aggressive.
1: Yeah. Aggressive. That's a good word.
0: And then uh, just to follow up a few weeks ago, we had the Fifth Sunday Conference. And I do want to say um, I've gotten a lot of people asking, can you please talk about this? And I've also heard some people say, you know what? Our ward handled it really well. And it, that just does my heart good because I do believe to yeah. my core that at the grassroots, some of us um, are lucky enough to be in wards that, that know how to truly minister that they're able to meet the needs of the people. They're able to actually translate something that looks like free agency at the ward level.
1: Yeah. I think, mm-hmm. I think if we probably pulled a lot of people, we might find the same thing, which is this, the bishops handled it pretty well. The videos they showed from the general authorities that were mandated to be interspersed in these different discussions were somewhat offensive to be honest. And I think, you know, like in the case of our bishop, he, he, our bishop is a gentle man, he's very kind, and I think he was almost a little bit embarrassed at some of the things that he was being required to show in um, on, on, on some of these videos. So here, here's my issue with, yeah, so Valerie has a quote that she wants to read okay, first. Okay,
0: so this is, um, so let me just, let's just back up a little bit and talk a little bit about what we think is actually going on in this hyperfocus. For missionary service now we might be able to argue that okay um missionary services i'm, I'm just going to go ahead and just speak speak as if i'm, I'm coming from the general councils uh, as making the assumption that this is what they're thinking which is missions are important they matter they strengthen the base of the church those who go on missions uh create the strongest families they become the strongest leaders of the church they strengthen us as an institution and they help people come closer to god okay now, under the surface, I think there's 20 other things going on that are not necessarily being addressed, and that maybe are not even that they're not willing or wanting to think about. But I think there are some of us out there who are savvy enough to recognize that there's something else going on. Let me read a quote by somebody who sent me this. She said this: um, "This feels like the leadership seeing the church hemorrhaging members." and slapping on a band-aid. So she's commenting on why are we having this fifth Sunday and why are we hyper focusing on missionary work at general conference? They're seeing the church hemorrhaging and they're slapping a band-aid on it. She said that she thinks that not only is the church hemorrhaging because the church isn't handling things well but they're also losing tithing dollars which is a whole separate different topic. She said, therefore, we are lacking in missionaries. There are less missionaries. She says, I think the church has work to do on itself before we try to grow it anymore. It feels like our society is getting healthier. There are more people healing, there's more mental health, etc. but the church isn't making large enough strides for many. She also finishes by saying, lastly, I have really felt uncomfortable with the push for all young men to go on a mission as an almost command. I mean, I saw recently an article stating that when you get baptized, you are committing to serve a mission. And I just think this is too much. Sharing the gospel is different than a proselyting mission. I believe it should be a family decision. So let's just spend a couple seconds talking about Nathan, talking about that. I I could not agree more with what she's saying here that the idea that the the young men are mandated to go on missions, in my opinion, is... Highly inappropriate. Mm. It's inappropriate to to mandate or, or demand. Is it's taking the agency of human beings away from them, and it's using guilt, shame, force. It's using hard power, which is sort of a threat that there's something lacking in you, or that somehow God will be angry with you, or it there's a question of your worthiness or your ability to be a future service in the church if you don't serve a mission, and it puts a, an enormous amount of pressure. On these young people, to the extent that many of them, I think, because they feel so much pressure, they really don't even know for themselves if this is something that they want to do because they don't feel like they're wanting or not wanting is even part of the equation. Mm -hmm. And so they go because they almost feel like they have to go. Right. And the last time I checked, that's that's Satan's plan.
1: Yeah. Well, and also they're not going to do a good job. They don't want to be there. They're going to suffer. It doesn't take into account any of their personal situations um you know we ask them to to families to make sacrifices when maybe they're living in abject poverty we ask uh people with mental health issues to you know somewhat ignore those things Uh, we ask them to you know assume that they have a testimony of things that they may not have testimonies of and to go out and testify of things that they really know nothing about Uh, and and so yeah i i think the the whole mandate thing is is absolutely ridiculous
0: it, it actually brings up in me i have a lot of strong feelings about this for a few reasons because we are at the age where many if not most of our peers have suffered from this hard power mandate i have some friends who have children who for a variety of reasons um some of them very legitimate reasons in questions that they have about the policies of the church don't feel like they can in good conscience go out and proselyte to towards um for an organization where they just simply don't feel like some of these social issues are being addressed with, with kindness. And these people are, these are good kids. These are good families. They're actually practicing the integrity that they were taught as children in primary. They're practicing that, that integrity to say I can't represent the church because I don't agree with some of the policies. I know some other people whose children are on our gender and sexual minorities. And I know some of these kids who actually have strong testimonies of the church who are having to confront the reality that even though they are technically worthy to serve missions, because they are not sexually active, they will have to go out and teach people that God rejects them Mm -hmm. as missionaries.
1: Right. The very person that they are.
0: And that breaks my heart that some of these kids are being put in a position where they're trying to navigate activity in the church as a non-sexually active gay person. yeah, And it's, it's requiring of them To really have to confront something that is very very painful about the institution and some of these kids I just fear are going to um, Mistake the institution for the the, the, how God feels
1: about them, right? So that's one of the that's the problem is that you have two choices one is they go serve a mission That's totally inauthentic and they'll suffer the whole time
0: or they're gonna have to feel a lot of cognitive dissonance in teaching the law of Chastity while knowing inside that they
1: it's not how they feel that's
0: not that's not who they are as humans Which is psychologically very unhealthy
1: or the other alternative is that they choose not to go on mission but then they get shamed because they didn't fulfill their priesthood responsibility that was just pounded into their heads yes. in general conference in the fifth Sunday. <clears throat> so I think, I think that's a good discussion. Um, I wanted to go back just a little bit to the um, whole uh, it's a, it's a you know priesthood responsibility. Um, when we talk in the church about why we do things, we talk about the hierarchy of motivation with fear being the lowest, reward being the next, sense of duty is the next highest and then finally love when we teach people that we go on missions because it's our duty we are not teaching them about love we are actually ignoring love which should be the highest motivation uh neither in general conference nor in the fifth Sunday lesson did I hear anybody talk about the importance of love and, and maybe I've missed something but I mean that wasn't the theme that that wasn't the tone of the meeting it wasn't a tone of love and, and you know love everyone love thy neighbor it was a tone of um you guys are letting the church down um and you know peter bleakley who i have an immense amount of respect for pounds all the time the 121st section of the doctrine and covenants in ways that the church is just ignoring the 121st section of the doctrine and covenants but if i may just talk about this for one second reading from verse 37 talking about priesthood that uh you know god has given to man it says it can be conferred upon us it is true But if we undertake to cover our sins, which the church does, it does not talk about its past sins, or to gratify its pride, like I need to build my numbers, or vain ambition, like I need you to get out there and build numbers for me and collect tithing for me, or to exercise control or dominion or compulsion, which they just did, all of those three things, they invoked the priesthood to exercise control, dominion, and compulsion on the children of men. The result is supposed to be the heavens withdraw, the spirit of the Lord is grieved, and eventually it's amen to the priesthood. Uh, in the verse, that's verse 37 in 121st section. In my mind, the church has violated all four of those principles.
0: Can you repeat those one more time, the four principles?
1: They they have used the priesthood to cover their sins. In other words, leaders are infallible and will never admit we've made a mistake. They gratify their pride. We're building this huge church and building up this $150 billion coffer of tithing. Vain ambition, which means that we are barking up the wrong tree. We are building the church instead of loving people. And we are exercising control, compulsion, and dominion over the members in the name of the priesthood so wow. to me i see a violation of all four principles from the 121 verse 37 in what just happened in these these two meetings that we're referring to
0: thank you for that nathan that is a punch in the gut honestly yeah I, i'm not disagreeing with you i'm just saying wow i think it's so important for us again you guys this is our institution and it's our responsibility to see truth and to be really really committed to and courageous enough and dedicated to seeing these kinds of things and with a lot of respect calling them out because once again you wouldn't be listening to this podcast if there wasn't some grain of loyalty in you that says i don't want to be critical i don't want To be aggressive and angry but i do want my institution to be accountable i want the church that i have some bond with to own up to what it's doing to hurt its members and in this case the members are the children Mm -hmm. these are young people and these are people that are trying to do well by their families they they have a, a bond with their heritage they're trying to be loyal they're trying to do right and when we sit in meetings like this where compulsion is exercised, where there's unrighteous dominion, where there's guilt and shame and um, sort of a, a, a pressing of, of power, mm-hmm. rather than a compulsion that is just um, that comes from within ourselves because we feel a deep desire and we feel love.
1: Right. And That's lo- the difference. Love is the whole thing, right? And the 121st yeah. section goes on to talk about that. We're talking about persuasion, long suffering, gentleness, meekness, true love kindness and knowledge those are the characteristics that we should be using to teach and influence people uh and i felt like at least from the general authorities those principles were ignored now again i'm going to give credit to my bishop because i think my bishop is a humble loving kind man he's a jewel and i think that he is you know salt of the earth and i feel i sensed that he was somewhat uncomfortable in the tone that he was supposed to present to us um but but this is where i really struggle is that when i feel like church leaders on any subject have violated the 121st section of the doctrine and covenants i take a step back mm-hmm. and say you know this, this revelation for me is an enzyme to hold everything up to If I feel compulsion, if I feel like sins are being hidden, if I feel like we are marking our progress by the wrong kinds of goals, then I think the priesthood is being used inappropriately. And when I sense a lack of love and kindness and patience and gentleness and meekness, I don't buy in.
0: Yeah. And I think what's driving this, again, is I think there's some desperation.
1: Desperation, no doubt.
0: That something is wrong in this world in that well, let me say it this way <laughs> something is going desperately wrong in the hemorrhaging of our of our of our church right and we're being we're blaming it on the wrong thing <laughs> the lack we're, of missionaries we're calling it wrong. secularism we're <laughs> calling it the world is coming to an end we're calling it we need desperately to get these missionaries out to save the world but really i think first and foremost to save the church
1: mm-hmm. and what
0: i feel with sadness in my heart is what they're not looking at is they don't see the real problem
1: nope They don't.
0: They don't see the real problem is is one's looking at oneself. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Is one's being able to say what am I not seeing here? How can I take this data, all of this data that I'm getting? Eight year old baptisms dropping off. Convert baptisms dropping off. Tithing dollars dropping Dropping off. off. Missionaries Missionaries dropping dropping off. off. What is going on here, and how can I take this? And and use it as data to look at myself, look at the institution, before we start trying to sort of scramble and 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 pick up new converts to take the place of the multi-generation pioneer stock families, who in their own integrity are feeling compelled to walk away. Yeah, this is highly, highly, highly problematic. Yeah. And I think it's evidence, um, more evidence, that we, um, as respectful dissenters, have to say, look at what's really going on. Have a look at this a different way.
1: Well, they're using the priesthood to hide their sins. I, I mean, it is absolutely a violation of DNC 12137. We will not go back and apologize for withholding the priesthood from black men and women. priesthood priesthood ordinations and temple privileges, and and this is such a low-hanging fruit, and I know I've mentioned it before, I just finished another book on this thing, uh, this topic, and and it's just so obvious that this was the whims of one man who had no integrity and did not uh, follow any of the church's protocol on introducing this, and and we could take that low-hanging fruit and say, yeah, you know what, Brigham made a mistake. He did. It wasn't a revelation, it was not received by law of common consent in the church. Um, and we need to apologize to our black brothers and sisters, whom we have hurt for the last 126 years before the revelation was changed. It would well, be I so. Think they're still being hurt, still being hurt right. because we won't apologize. Right. Correct. So, the, so, so the ban was 126 years. There's still been some some damage
0: because we keep post- sort of we keep we keep sort of um we don't necessarily have a consistent stand on what happened. In other words, we make some progress towards some sort of like minimal accountability and then you hear a new fireside or a new conference talk and we double back and yeah. actually unsay all of yeah. the things that were said.
1: Right. Brad Wilcox, yeah. mm-hmm. right? Elder Oaks. Right. Church never apologizes. Really? Yeah. That's the that's like the first rule of repentance that I learned.
0: That's the atonement.
1: Is is that we do apologize? So so you know just it's just one point of many well, that people struggle with because we're using the priesthood to cover our sins. Well,
0: and let me just, if I may, I want to just talk a little bit about how we do this um, institutionally, but it also really plays out in the mission experience itself. So we've kind of jumped back and forth, you guys, between why the heavy push on fifth Sunday and the most recent general conference, and some reasons why the mission itself ought to be reformed. The mission experience itself ought to be reformed. Give the kids autonomy. Maybe right. consider... Uh, doing something that's a little bit more flexible help these kids learn in the mission what spiritual and psychological agency looks like help them recognize that in those young adult years it begins to be their responsibility to look to God as their first and Mm -hmm. only you Mm -hmm. know authority right right? Um, help these kids and let the leaders actually guide the kids. In helping them see that they are the masters of their own destinies by helping them cultivate a mission experience that they could actually personally buy into that works for them. Let me take that a step further in the spirit of talking about not only the covering one sins, but also how mission reform might be considered. And I want to just spend a second talking about patriarchy that is something else that our church has yet to confront in any meaningful way and the mission experience is a breeding ground for patriarchy. Okay, so let me just break that down for you guys a little bit, because I've served a mission, I see it, I've seen it firsthand, is the mission is a place where we send our young men and women, where in many cases they are learning what it looks like to be in hierarchical, patriarchal, organizational structures. So they are learning that there is, I mean, Nathan, are you? can you remember there was a lot of emphasis and status put on priesthood promotion sure. in the mission. Yeah. It was a big deal. Yeah.
1: Position in the mission, district leader, uh, zone leader, AP, but they were only open to it young men. open
0: to young men at their, but but what it does is it actually it it creates this idea that hierarchy and power is all important. Mm-hmm. Even between the men themselves, but certainly, in other words, men vie against men, mm-hmm. and so men end up being in positions where they have more and more and more power. And the more power they have, the more ego they have. And then, of course, at least back in the '90s, women couldn't even play. Right. But it hurt some men that didn't get picked, that mm-hmm. didn't have enough authority, or didn't have enough, um, you know, of the good graces of the of the st- the mission mm-hmm. president. So some men were hurt, and all women were hurt Mm -hmm. and are hurt because the women don't of course hold the priesthood yeah and so if you think about this the mission experience itself is a built-in system for grooming patriarchy and let me just offer to you a couple of microaggressions that i think i see and notice that happen in the mission i'm going to just define microaggression for those of you who may not be familiar with that term a microaggression is a statement action or incident regarded as an in sorry let me start that over A microaggression is a statement, action, or incident regarded as an instance of indirect, subtle, or unintentional discrimination against members of a marginalized group, such as a racial or ethnic minority. Okay, in our case, it's a gender minority. So a microaggression is something that is very, very subtle and unintentional, but it is discriminatory nonetheless. Mm -hmm. Okay, so if you think about this, By nature of the fact that for some somewhat arbitrary reason, women only serve for 18 months and men serve for 24 months, there is something going on there that is distinguishing the difference between a man and a woman. Mm -hmm. Somehow the man is valued more than the woman by a longer mission.
1: Maybe, or maybe it's, hey, women, you need to hurry up and get home and not not waste your uh, fertile years. But once
0: again, I would call that a microaggression. Oh,
1: absolutely. I'm just saying yes. I, I'm, not, I'm not exactly sure what the underlying well, intention is, but I, it's it's ridiculous. I have
0: no idea myself. I think we could all speculate yeah. But the, by nature of the fact that they go at a different age and the time the service commitment is different mm-hmm. speaks into some really deeply embedded ideas around gender role and responsibility. Oh,
1: absolutely. I mean, you could you could pick out a million of these.
0: There are. Well, go ahead.
1: Why do, Why are only the girls called to serve in visitor centers?
0: Right. Microaggression. Right?
1: Because they're beautiful, Yep. right? They're the we're, face we're, of the church. They're the, they're mm-hmm. the, they're the, they're the dainty little, you mm-hmm. know, happy female that represents the church. And everybody knows that people respond to women better than men, right? So, I yes. mean, you know, that's an interesting one. Right. Um, The age difference, huge deal. I mean, why is a woman expected to go on a mission halfway through her education when now the boys can go before they start their college? I mean, that's a terrible situation for for young ladies to have to put their education on hold halfway into it.
0: So we have age difference. We have time of service difference. We have leadership opportunity differences um you know a lot of that right Mm -hmm. just by nature of the fact that because of the patriarchy in general but each and every one of these is it's a statement that is communicating either either in subtle or not so subtle ways that men are preferred in missionary service even the way it's languaged is a microaggression i might even take the micro out of it the way they speak so condescendingly and placatingly toward how we welcome the dear sisters (laughs) who want to come in some ways that is um that is aggressive in a very very subtle and abusive way meaning that it's it's it has the appearance of being placating and tender and gentle to the women but what it's doing is it's actually communicating a one-up status Mm-hmm. of a man to a one down status of the woman. And women are, are they're to that. And that's one of the reasons why many young women have no interest in being a part of an institution that commits microaggressions on the regular, not only in missionary service, which it certainly happens there, but even in church every week, where mm-hmm. we're really, really putting uh, men and women, um, there's clearly a higher value that men have because they have been given the institution to run and mm-hmm. the women are they are they are the the service workers for those who run the institution at the administrative level.
1: Yeah, no, I, I absolutely agree. I mean, it's interesting. I hadn't really thought about these microaggressions, but you see them all the time. Yeah. Um, you know, sisters speak first, elders speak second. Um, you know, up until recently, sisters couldn't even say uh, the opening prayer in a meeting because it was supposed to be opened by a priesthood holder um and you're absolutely right the these concepts are all introduced in the mission yeah absolutely um it's a
0: it's a grooming for a a larger culture of microaggressions that just insidiously seep into the homes and the families of um, of the members of the church and the thing that's so dangerous about them is that they become absolutely invisible but they are very very corrosive to the potential intimacy of the individuals and of the couples that are part of the marriage and that are trying to raise families in this church
1: sure
0: anything you want to add as we sort of um, free associate um, wrap <laughs> up what we've talked about so you guys we have run through our thoughts and feelings about the fifth sunday about general conference about the hyper focus thoughts and feelings about why um, thoughts and feelings about ideas that would actually help young people buy more into the idea of missionary service Um, other ways that we think missionary service could and should be reformed that has more sensitivity um, around patriarchy and also how we as a culture uh, we as a church need to look at what microaggressions are going on and look at what we're what we're receiving from the, the general leadership and sort of see through what's going on and maybe help them recognize that what's going on is less about needing to go out and serve To grow the numbers of the church and more actually about looking at why the church is suffering so much and hemorrhaging its numbers Mm -hmm. and let that be a data point or data, a lot of data points to help them look at what they might do to help us as constituents of the church feel like we want to be growing. The institution, because we feel more ownership, we feel more seen, we feel more like we are participants in something that we are that we have, um, you know, a lot of reason to care about and want to be a part of. Anything else you want to talk about as we close, babe?
1: No, I I think we touched on all the points that that we thought were were salient to the to the issue. I I think the thing I would just close with is this. I I wish people would listen more. I I just really do. I. I, i think a lot of people have a lot of really good ideas and i think that if leadership were willing to to just listen a little bit a lot of these problems could be solved i mean we could just get so much more buy-in from the generations that we are losing if we just had people that were willing to listen and these face-to-face you know firesides that they've been trying to do they're total jokes. We all know it. They're just, they're just farces. Uh, I, I appreciate the effort, but when you listen to what's actually talked about, nobody's listening to the questions being asked. They just give these pre set answers that they've already come up with that have nothing to do with the questions being asked. And I think that's just, a, a, I think it's a microcosm. I think those face to faces are a microcosm of how the church is run.
0: Of the larger problem.
1: They just don't listen. Nobody's listening. Nobody's listening to the youth and saying, why are you leaving? What is bothering you? What's hurting you? What have we done as an institution that has failed you? Um, They they think they know everything and they just keep pushing harder and harder. They just keep drilling the square peg into the round hole with more and more force instead of saying, this is a square peg in a round hole. That's my thought.
0: No, I love it. I think that I... I I amen that, <laughs> yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And when other institutions notice something terribly wrong going on, right. they bring in a consultant, they bring in a third party, they bring in some sort of an outside set of eyes to look at what is going on that you are seeing that we cannot see because we are so deeply embedded in our own culture. That happens on the regular uh, in, in, in industry.
1: You know that that is a really good point Val. yeah, and, and I hate to keep prolonging this, but I got to tell you that that is a beautiful point mm. uh, So not too long ago Elon Musk the wealthiest man who has ever lived on the face of the earth put out a memo to his Tesla company and he said I Need the combined Genuine genius of every person that works for my company I want every person who works on the assembly line who cleans a toilet who assembles or sells cars to write me and tell me what you see and what I can do wow. better, how this company can do better. We have got to trim our margins. We have got to u- utilize the combined talents and genius of everybody in this company. And for the richest man and, and probably one of the smartest men who's ever lived on the f- face of this earth, and don't get me wrong, I mean, yeah. he's, he's an arrogant prick yeah. sometimes. I was going
0: to say, he's a difficult he, man, although he's in this moment, prick. he's teaching us something, but
1: right? But he, even as the arrogant, wealthy prick that he can sometimes be, he recognizes that he could learn from listening to the thousands of people in his company because there are probably some people on the grassroots level that have some good ideas.
0: Absolutely. They 100% do.
1: Yeah. And so why can't we be like that? Right. <laughs> so I don't yeah. know. I don't get it.
0: Well, what, what ends up being really the only checks and balances that the, that the church tends to have, it's, um, it's us who are trying to do it gently and you know, with a lot of respect, but also with a, in no uncertain terms being direct. And the press and we've all seen yeah. recently how they handle that.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> it's hard for. Um, yeah, it's 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 it takes a lot of humility.
1: Yeah.
0: And so I guess uh, we we have a united responsibility, you who are listening out there and looking at you. I know it's scary. Um, I know there's a lot of programming that we have that has told us that if we speak up against authority, there's something um, wrong with us
1: mm-hmm.
0: that is programming. That is not what's what, what's really going on here. What we are doing is we are exercising spiritual and psychological agency that has been given us by our own parents in heaven. Yep. And I want you to stand by that, and I want you to trust your own inner divine. When you don't, when it if it doesn't feel right, pause and <laughs> honor yourself yeah. and listen to that inner divine voice. That is the still small voice trying to help you recognize that Sometimes. Your own parents in heaven are helping you discern what growing up spiritually looks like. And sometimes it's scary. It looks like it looks like speaking up against the institution that doesn't have it right. Yep. Okay, so I'm gonna close up right now. Um, thank you guys all for being here today. I love your thoughts, your feelings, your comments. I so appreciate that. Many of you have been getting on Latter-day Struggles podcast on Instagram. Uh, some of the things that we quoted today came from your comments there. And I really, really enjoy and appreciate um, your thoughts your feelings your emails, um, you can email me at uh, info at Valerie get on instagram um, you can message me there. And, as per usual, I would really, really appreciate those of you who have already not done so to please get on iTunes and rate this podcast and write a review sharing your unique personal experience that you're having with this podcast. I guarantee that the more ratings and reviews we get, the more this will spread and help other people that are much like us. I'm beginning to believe more and more that there are many, many of us that are trying to navigate these complex things that are exactly where you are, that are struggling and in a lot of pain, but also trying to grow spiritually and trying to reconcile some pretty challenging things. We need each other. So if you've already found this podcast and you think there are others that may um, be in your circle, share it, write a review, rate it. And if you haven't already done so, subscribe. And I will see you guys next time. Thanks for being here.
1: Good night.